You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The Illinois Family Institute is an anti-gay hate group, so certified by the Southern Poverty Law Center, one of our anti-gay hate groups in the United States, like Family Research Council and Americans for Truth About Homosexuality. They claim they're for the family, but really they're just for persecuting and discriminating against queer people. And there was a post uh, on the Illinois Family Institute's website. And a, a quick note to the Illinois Family Institute, I'm from fucking Illinois, from a fucking family in Illinois. By the way, gay people don't jump out of the back of Crisco cans and gay bars fully formed at age 21. We had parents and siblings and childhoods and my childhood I spent in illa fucking noi. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Lori Higgins from the Illinois Family Institute asked a really important question on her blog this week. Why should you view photos from Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen? Why view photos of lynchings? Why view photos of aborted babies? Why view the photo of a young napalmed Vietnamese girl? It's important, uh, Higgins goes on to argue, that conservatives look evil in the face. Funny that this conservative should include napalming Vietnamese girls in the evil category because conservatives were very much for that 30 or 40 years ago. But whatever. Conservatives have to stare evil in the face. And uh, she goes on to say – Many conservatives do not fully realize the evil nature of the enemy we fight. And merely describing it does not adequately convey how profoundly wicked it is. Without a fuller apprehension of the nature and extent of the evil, many Christians are complacent and silent. Often it is only an encounter with such evil that generates a proper response from Christians. So uh, here's the evil that... Lori Higgins wanted to acquaint Illinois Christians with. I'm always telling people who say two men can't make a baby, anything is possible for God. Like, I'm going to keep inseminating my husband and keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> that's me on Bill Maher's show on HBO. Uh, last July, that's, that's ancient in TV land. That's an old clip. And apparently watching me on Bill Maher is an encounter with evil. Evil on a par with concentration camps and lynchings and napalming little Vietnamese peasant girls. It turns out, though, that some Christians, Christians who follow Lori Higgins, don't want to watch Bill Maher talking to, quote, infamous homosexual anti-bullying bully Dan Savage. Even some dues-paying members of the Illinois Family Institute, again, an SPLC-certified anti-gay hate group, they were upset with Higgins for urging them to watch me on Maher, which they had managed to avoid doing. And this reluctance on the part of her own followers, Lori Higgins' own demented, bigoted followers, to look evil, in this case, me, you know, and I'm just like concentration camps and lynchings and napalmings, square in the face, this reluctance uh, really depressed Higgins at the end of her post after getting pushback from people who didn't want to watch me and Mar. Lori Higgins wrote, what dupes and cowards Christians are. If I wrote that, that would be held up as an example of my anti-gay Christian bigotry. But uh, Lori Higgins can write that about Christians who 
don't want to watch Bill Maher. Don't want to watch me on Bill Maher. Even though Dan Savage on Bill Maher is evil. You got to wonder, though, what she means by an encounter with such evil. And here she's referring to me. Merely describing evil does not adequately convey how profoundly wicked it is. She's talking about me here without a fuller apprehension of the nature and the extent of the evil. Many Christians are complacent and silent. And they have to watch this video of me being evil. Because that will generate a proper response from Christians. You have to wonder what that response might be. Are they going to kick in my door and knock Terry's dick out of my mouth? Like, what the fuck are they going to do about it? But that's the evil. I made a joke on Mar about inseminating my husband. What did they think we've been doing all these 20 years? Playing solitaire and sorry? Like, no, there was some insemination going on around the card games and making dinner and taking care of each other. Mm, evil. This evil shit. You know, this evil gay fucking that we're so very shy about, which is why Xtube is just chock-a-block with clips of gay sex. We haven't been really covering this shit up for the last 30 or 40 years. That gay people, we have sex. We have this evil, evil sex. And sometimes we go on evil television shows and we joke about it. Not at, not at our own expense. At your expense, Laurie Higgins and other idiots who can't wrap their heads around the fact that some people are gay. Who can't fucking get over it. Some people are gay and some gay people have relationships and some gay people in their context of their relationships have the gay sex. It's true. And no one is hiding it from conservatives or anyone else. If it bothers you, don't look. If Mar bothers you, don't watch. But Lori Higgins wants to make sure you're watching. Because she thinks, because she's a demented anti-gay bigot, she thinks that if straight America just woke up to the fact that the gay people are having the gay sex and not just decorating our fabulous apartments, that Americans will rise up in opposition to all this gay sex that we're having. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. It's really funny when you pause to think about it. What Lori Higgins thinks is that we've managed to pull the wool over the eyes of the average American, the, of all the Christians out there, who just don't know that what we're doing is the gay sex, which is just like the Holocaust and lynchings and napalmings and abortings, the gay sex, which is nothing like any of those things. Straight people are used to it now. Straight people who aren't psychotic bigots or closeted fucking nutbags themselves know we're having sex and they don't care. Before your calls, a couple of quick announcements. I'm going to be appearing in New York City this week as a part of the Penn World Voices Festival, which is going on uh, in New York between April 28th and May 4th. Go to worldvoices.pen.org for information. I curated co-curated the Obsession series, uh, and I will be taking part in it with Eileen Miles, Emily Bazelon from Slate, Jennifer Boylan, uh, and Masha Gessen and I all doing one night each in the Obsession series. Go to worldvoices.pen.org slash 2014-obsession for information about the Obsession series, which is really interesting. It's writers uh, and thinkers and pundits and authors talking about a subject that obsesses them that they haven't written about before and haven't researched and just sort of off the cuff having a conversation about these topics. Uh, Emily Bazelon is doing Childhood Demons. Eileen Myers is talking about spoilage and ruination. Uh, Jennifer Boylan is talking about lost loves. I am talking about plaques and trophies. And Masha Gessen is talking about citizen victims all this week in New York City as a part of the Penn World Voices Festival. Please come out and see us all. And announcement number two, Hump. 
The Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival returns to Seattle and Portland the next couple of weeks. Go to humptour.com for information about tickets and about the shows. Uh, Please come out. After Seattle and Portland, Hump is going on to Atlanta, to Bend, Oregon, to Pittsburgh, to Minneapolis, to Vancouver, to Philadelphia, to Toronto. Hump is getting everywhere. Go to humptour.com for more information about coming to my little porn festival. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. Hi, Tech Savvy at Rescue. Uh, I had a question about my current relationship. seems to be heading towards an end recently in a couple of podcasts. We've talked about how for every year of a relationship, you should grieve for a month. But uh, I, I guess the biggest question I have is um, what responsibility do I have for my soon-to-be ex-girlfriend? Uh, a little bit of history about us. We've been together for years, and it's coming to a point where she's graduating school, and she's going to either move back to where we originally came from, or she's going to you know, start her career in the city that we currently live in. However, in either case, just because of the way our relationships have gone and because of where I'm at in my life, I feel that it's better for both of us to uh, live separately because we've been living together for the past year and a half. Um, You know, I care about her and I still love her. And even though I don't want to live with her and necessarily be with her at this point in my life, I still feel a bit responsible for any pain she might be enduring because of our separation. I know eventually it's really up to her to take care of that, but I still feel like there's something I could say or something that I can do. Um, or I don't even know if that's misguided uh, because maybe that would just make it worse. So how much should I put into uh, helping her get through the grieving process as quickly as possible while also making it, you know, a healthy grieving process? Because of course, you know, we both have to grieve, but uh, you know, what do I, what should I do for her? What should I do for myself? Thanks for everything. Appreciate it. So you're going to break up with her. You're going to dump her. You're going to knife this relationship. But then you want to be the good guy. You want to be there to help her through this grieving process. You can't. That's not your role. You are the bad guy in her grieving process. You're like the murderer who wants to help the family of the person they've just killed through the grieving process. Not your role, murderer. Not your role, relationship knifer. And you're right. All sorts of good reasons here why you want to end this relationship. Uh, Totally legit. I'm not telling you they're a bad person because you want out of this relationship. People get out of relationships all the time. But you have this misplaced sense of responsibility or entitlement even perhaps, maybe just a little bit, where it's your job to break her heart and then stitch it the fuck up. Not your job. Your job at this instance is to break her heart. And I think what's happening is you have this – Reluctance, you sound like a really thoughtful, sensitive guy, right? You have this reluctance or this fear of being cast in the role of the bad guy. Well, there is no other part for you to play in this little drama than temporarily the bad guy. The focus of her anger, her anger at you after you dump her is part of her grieving process. You can't strip that away from her. You can't deny that to her. Have the courage and the decency to be the bad guy. End the relationship. Tell her why you're ending the relationship. Maybe alert a few friends that you have in common that the relationship has ended and perhaps encourage them to reach out to her if you guys have been the kind of isolate each other couple that some people become in a relationship. And then get the fuck out of the way and let her grieve and heal on her own time, in her own way. And for most people who've been unexpectedly dumped, part of that grieving process includes 
having a big hate hard on for the person who dumped them. So you're just going to have to be the bad guy. You cannot be at once the source of the grief and the grief counselor. So be the source and then get the fuck out of the way. Hi, Dan. This is a 26-year-old woman calling from New York City. And I'm calling because I'm trying to figure out if I'm a bisexual. I've never slept with a woman, um, but I'd like to. I love watching lesbian porn. I love dick. Don't get me wrong. But I'm trying to figure out if one needs to sleep with a woman as a female to be considered bisexual. I didn't have to sleep with a man to be considered straight. Um, So I don't know if the same rule applies. I'm not so concerned with labels per se, um, but I would like to meet a woman and and explore this without making her feel like I'm just trying it on for size and that she's an experiment. So I don't know if it's ethical or not for me to list myself as bisexual on a dating site, for example, or if I should wait to have an experience with a woman before I give myself that label, if I enjoy it, of course. According to my dog-eared, much-referenced copy here of the Protocols of the Elders of Bion, I am required to tell you that you do not have to have a same-sex experience to identify as bi, any more than someone has to have a same-sex experience to identify as gay, any more than someone has to have an opposite-sex experience to identify as straight. There are plenty of people rattling around in the world who are straight-identified who are virgins, who've never had sex and may never have sex doesn't mean they're not straight. There are 12 and 13-year-old kids out there coming out as gay to their families. Obviously, hopefully, in all instances, they are virgins, not yet having had any same-sex sexual encounters, and yet they know they are gay. You can know you're bi without ever having slept with a lady. That said, reshelving my copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Bion, there are people out there who believe themselves to be bi uh, and then had a same-sex experience and realized that they weren't, that they weren't as heteroflexible even as they thought they might be. There's a terrific song about this phenomenon called The College Tribe by Garfunkel and Oates, friends of the show. They have a new comedy series coming from IFC and I'm so excited and thrilled for them. But you might want to go listen to The College Tribe by Garfunkel and Oates. Uh, and, and here's what I think is going on. I, I think most people who know they're straight or gay really fucking know it. And then there are a lot of people who are now so not homophobic that they identify in themselves this appreciation for the beauty of same-sex folks. Uh, They are not squicked out at all by same-sex activity. Maybe they even enjoy some same-sex porn and they believe themselves to be like bi or heteroflexible and then they try it and they go, "Mm, yeah, no, the reality of this is really kind of not for me. And I've seen this from you know uh, gay dudes who thought they were – down with ladies and weren't and straight guys who thought they were down with a little dick and weren't and of course women who thought they were down with a little pussy and weren't. So this is a thing that happens and I get in trouble sometimes for talking about things that happen. I just can't tell you knowing that this is a thing that happens that the very first time your face is planted in some other woman's pussy that this is going to be awesome and you're going to love it and you're going to have this confirmation that you're seeking. But I can't tell you that won't happen either. Just sometimes fucking happens. And I'm sure it happens that some people think they're straight and then wake up and realize that they're queer many years into opposite-sex relationships. That happens. I know people that's happened to. So there's lots of caveats around the sexual identity shit. And all of that said, there are so many women like you out there. 
so many women who have been in opposite sex relationships, have dated only men, who believe themselves to be bi or are actually bi, who are curious about finally having a same-sex encounter with another woman, but who are paralyzed by this fear that the women who are out there who sleep with women will resent and hate them and feel used or objectified or like they're being experimented upon. And the trick is identify yourself as what you are and other women who are just like you who are looking for women will beat a path to your pussy. Your option is not exclusively limited to worldly wise experienced out lesbians or long confirmed happily pussy munching bi ladies. You also have the option of other seekers, other people who are looking to experiment and explore and get to know themselves better. So put yourself out there as who you are and you will either attract lesbians who are down with who you are, bi women who are down with who you are or other women just like you who are on the same journey of discovery that you are. Hi, um, I'm a 25-year-old uh, gay male from Sacramento, California, uh, but I have a question um, that's kind of been bugging me. So I was kind of joking around with a friend of mine um, the other day, and I mentioned the Cleveland Steamer, and he had no idea what it was, so I went ahead and I Googled it. So I found a few definitions on Urban Dictionary, of course, silly, um, and all of them like done personally by people. And so I came across one that was like four down, but it started off as... The Cleveland steamer is a sexual disorder, and I got really hung up on the word disorder. And, like, I'm pretty open-minded sexually. Um, I mean, I think that it's a little weird. It's a little gross, of course, but, like, who am I to judge? But it just really bugged me, and I could not get it out of my head that they called it a disorder. So I just want to know what your thoughts are on that, um, and if that was an actual definition, or if it was just somebody's own personal thoughts that with that, it would make me much more comfortable. Um, but just kind of wanted to hear your take on it. Thank you. Odd that you don't mention what a Cleveland steamer is, which puts me in the position of having to mention what a Cleveland steamer is. There are numerous definitions at urbandictionary.com. My first reference for everything except of course are the protocols of the elders of Bion. And they're gross. It's one of those sex acts that 13-year-old boys um, like to talk about and credit to exclusively gay people even though everybody is capable of one person taking a crap on another person's chest and then sitting down and rocking back and forth like a steamroller or – and I love this one. I love this definition at UrbanDictionary.com. Having a one-night stand then taking a shit on your sleeping partner's chest before leaving. OK, UrbanDictionary.com. Um, my favorite, of course, completely fictional sex act is one that a friend of mine made up called an icy mic, which is where you take a big turd, put it in the freezer, freeze it solid and then push it into somebody else's ass as a dildo. It's called an icy mic. Give it a try. Uh, I don't know why this concerns you so much that Cleveland Steamer is on somebody's personal idiosyncratic uh, DSM somewhere online. Um I don't know why this pains you. I don't know why uh, the tech savvy at risk youth insisted I take your call and answer your question except perhaps they wanted to see me read the definition of Cleveland steamer aloud, which is in my job description. Thank you for calling. Hi, Dan. Long time listener. I am happy that I finally have a reason to call up and ask a question. A 30-year-old heteroflexible here, co-worker of mine, gay as a giraffe, started a couple days ago. The first thing he mentions whenever he introduces himself is, 
you know, why he moved to the city because there's so many hot girls and, you know, he has a girlfriend here and there. Uh, as I said, queer as a giraffe. So we go out to lunch and it's pretty obvious. I want to sort of bring it up. And so when he says these little ambiguous things, um, let me back up. I think I have reasonable gaydar. Uh, this guy happens to be my type to complicate things a bit, just, you know, tiny little thin ways, the feminine type, you know, would love to put him in a, in a schoolgirl outfit and teach him a lesson, but I digress. So my question is, uh, there, during the course of this conversation, there was a lot of this ambiguous back and forth. Uh, what clenched it for me is that he was talking about his past. He mentioned he was homeschooled, uh, you know, Christian. And I said, well, that explains a lot. Uh, and he kind of looked at me and grinned and uh, mentioned that he doesn't look forward to going back home because he's going to have to avoid all his grandmothers and aunts and, you know, something about, I think they, I, I don't want to just invent the story about my girlfriend. And I think they knew. And he, he, he'll say these things and I'll sort of smile. I'll give the, you know, correct, I, I know that you know that I know, but I'm not going to call you out on it because clearly you're in the closet and, you know, want to keep it ambiguous so that you can still pretend in front of the coworkers or whatever. Um, I happen to be in a southern town that is a liberal college town, so it's not as if we're in one of those shitty deep south towns. My question is, how do I respect his autonomy? I, I would never out him or force that. But even among us, how do I address the question of, come on, dude, you're not straight. Like, let's at least drop this. Am I enabling this guy to sort of live this lie by playing this game with him? And I know that he knows and will keep it ambiguous. How should I approach that? Thanks, Dan. If you want him to feel safe coming out to you, here's your best option. Come out to him. You're heteroflexible. I bet that you are straight identified at work. I bet he thinks you are straight, like he assumes everyone else at work is straight. And you are sitting there on a secret, which is you want to fuck his ass after you dress him up as a Catholic schoolgirl. That info laid out in front of him would very likely make him feel comfortable enough to come out to you. Not the Catholic schoolgirl outfit and your desire to fuck his ass, that can come later. But just the next time you guys are out for drinks and he says ambiguous leading things, you just say, Hey, you know, uh, while we're being ambiguous uh, and leading, like I'm bi. I'm heteroflexible. If you prefer heteroflexible to bi, if you like those extra syllables, bonus syllables, you can use them. And then I bet once you tell him your quote-unquote secret, and if no one else at work knows it, then it is indeed your secret, he will feel comfortable and confident in sharing his secret with you. That's your best card. Lay that card on the table. You're not straight. Tell him. The odds that he will tell you then that he's not straight either are really, really high. And that brings you that much closer to getting him into that Catholic schoolgirl outfit and getting your dick into his ass. Hello. My name is Jessica. My concern is that although there's a lot of talk about sex workers that are women or trans, I haven't really heard a lot about women who are looking for professional male sex workers you know, the preferably uh, attractive, clean, and ones who are bent on women's pleasure without finding all the creepy guys who just want to be paid to have sex and aren't very concerned about their clients and how to look these people up. I have never um, looked into sex work before for myself, 
mainly because I'm married, but it's getting to that point where I just need a little pick-me-up or something to add some interest, which I think will really help things out with my marriage at the moment. So, yeah, how do I contact a professional male sex worker? There's a supply and demand problem here. There are a lot of males out there looking to pay for sex. Uh, not a lot of females, hardly any females out there looking to pay for sex. So there's a large number of female sex workers who service male clientele and a large number of male sex workers who service a male clientele. But there isn't a large pool of male sex workers serving a female clientele because if you want to go into that business, your clients are going to be so few and far between that you're going to need another line of work to tide you over. For a lot of guys who want to sell sex, that other line of work to tide them over in between the occasional female client, male clients. The place that you should go to look for a male sex worker who will service you, who will work with you, is where the guys are looking for male sex workers. One website, rentboy.com, and they're winking at you. They're letting you know, ladies, when they are up for and available to you. Uh, there are a lot of guys on Rentboy.com who identify themselves as bi or even gay for pay. Now, some of those guys are working in angle because there are gay men out there who think it's sexier to be with a guy who's not gay or a guy who's also with women. Uh, but a lot of these guys are actually straight identified in their heart of hearts guys who are capable of having sex with other men for money but would much prefer – to be sexually active with women. And the way you sort the actual bi guys or actual straight gay for pay guys from the guys who are lying to you know, attract the gay clientele who are seeking that kind of niche guy is just by sending them an email and asking them if they are fake gay for pay, if they are actually gay and you say, I am an actual lady who would like to pay you for sex, they'll run screaming. But if they're into it, if they're into you, then you can say exactly what it is that you're looking for, what kind of service you're looking for. You're concerned about being pleasured, not just being you know, used by the guy to get himself off. Put that out there. That doesn't – and see if he's up for that. He could lie and say he's up for that and then be a lousy lover, but that's a risk you run when you sleep with people for free. That's a risk you run when you have a one-night stand. That's a risk you run when you are a Duggar girl and you marry someone without first at least kissing them. So you can't avoid that risk, but you can find uh, male sex workers who will work with women. You will just find them on the same sites where gay dudes are looking for male sex workers who will work with dick. Hi, Dan. I am a straight female living in New York, 25 years old, and I have my own closet to come out of, and I'm not sure how to do it, so I was hoping you could help me. My parents are atheist, liberal, extremely loving. My fiance, we've been together for five years. He is 30 years older than me. And I just can't seem to find the words to tell them that I am with him. This is going to sound ridiculous, but they know we live together. They think that it's just a roommate situation. I don't know if that's ostrich behavior on their part, putting their head in the sand, so to speak. But no one's ever come out and asked me, I've never been able to say it, and I just am so afraid that I'll tell them, and they'll, and they'll just, I don't know what, I'm scared they'll abandon me, I'm scared, I'm just so scared to tell them, and I was hoping you could help me with that. We're talking about your fiancé, you're 30 years older than you, fiancé, you're going to marry this guy, you cannot marry in secret, marriage is a public thing, your relationship is a public thing. Thing. It has a public dimension. 
Uh, so you're going to have to tell your fucking parents. You're going to have to gonad the fuck up, ovary up, and tell them the truth. What's the worst that could happen? Your parents could be angry. Your parents could abandon you, you say. You're a grown fucking woman. I, the advice for you is the same advice for those 13 and 14 and 15-year-old kids out there who are coming out to their parents about being gay or lesbian or bi or trans. Those kids, my advice to them is come out smart, come out at the right time, have a backup plan. But the shift you have to make in your brain is don't fear your parents' rejection. Make them fear yours, right? Your presence in their lives is your leverage over your parents as an adult child. So you say to them – He's not my roommate. He's my fiance. I'm in love with him. Love and accept it or you will see a lot less of me because he's the man I'm choosing to spend my life with. He is the man I am making my immediate next of kin in place of you guys. That's what marriage does. That's its secret superpower. And if they have a fit and if they disapprove, say, OK, bye. Bye. See you when you're done having your fit. Bye. I'll be back later when you're done having your fit. We love each other. Period. The end. Love and accept my partner or go fuck yourselves. Stop being such a coward. Again, there are 13-year-olds. I get letters from parents whose 13-year-olds have come out to them when they're entirely dependent on their parents for everything, food, shelter, clothing, and education, love, entirely vulnerable. You're a 25-year-old grown woman with her own home and a partner and you're in the corner cringing in fear because your parents might shit their pants when they find out this guy is your fiancé, not your roommate? Not up. Ovary up. Gonad up. Tell them and make that shift in your head. It's really easy to do. You, when you say this to people, you see the light go on in their eyes. Make them fear your rejection. Do not fear theirs. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from Texas. And I am... Uh, I guess I have kind of a medical question. I've Googled it and I can't find anything. But I just went through a breakup with my girlfriend. And I've been having, like, sex with men, like, once a week. And I was active with my ex. Um, we had a pretty healthy sex life. But, um, yeah, I'm losing a lot of weight. And I think there are probably other things in my life um, going on. but. It's kind of like a dramatic amount. It's been a month and I've lost like 15 pounds. And this happened the last time. And I broke up with my girlfriend, a different one. And I also had a heterosexual sex. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I know this seems silly. But I do wonder if, um, I don't know if there's some kind of maybe a hormone going on. Like getting something from the... Penis wrapped in latex. Just a just a question. I just haven't really had this kind of um, fluctuation in my weight unless I'm single, and um, I work out all the time, but it does not produce the kind of results that breakups do. Only science can answer this question with any finality. But you know what? Science is busy with other shit right now. Science is busy with the edges of the universe and curing cancer and Ebola and all sorts of much more important shit than why you drop 15 pounds every time you get out of a relationship with a woman and end up fucking a bunch of dudes. I have some theories, hypotheses that cannot be tested because, again, science is busy with important shit. Um, it could be that you know after a breakup, you are eating less. 
not just sitting on more dick, but eating less because you're not having regular meals with a partner. You know, at the end of the night, you're not just like rolling into bed to watch television and eat some pussy. Perhaps you're leaving the house. You're going out. You're doing things. Maybe you had a big sad after this breakup and people tend to eat less when they're having a big sad. So the drop in weight and the ramping up of dick are completely irrelevant coincidences. And you're losing weight right now in the wake of the end of this relationship for the same reason so many other people lose weight. They're not having regular meals with a partner, getting out more, eating less, just still going to the gym. Or another hypothesis, maybe, you know, you have relationships with women and then you end them and then you're on the deck and maybe subconsciously there's this awareness on your part that when you're trying to attract male partners, that appearance, being a skinny bitch matters a little bit more to all those shallow fucking dick dudes out there. And you start hitting the gym a little more harder. You start eating a little less because you want the dick. I don't know. Again, only science, only a double-blind controlled study with different populations and random samples recruited from all walks of life could possibly answer this question with any definitive kind of answers. But like I said, science is busy with more important shit. All you got to do in the interim between girlfriends is enjoy the dick and enjoy it safely. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 19-year-old straight guy in college in New York City, and I have a question about online dating. Oftentimes, uh, when I get a match on Tinder or OkCupid, I I don't know what to say first. I don't know what the first message should be. Just like, hey, how are you? It's kind of nice, but some girls find that really boring. Sometimes I'll ask a question about something they've written about themselves in their profile, just to just to kind of show that I'm interested and show that I've actually read their profile. That's a, it's a nice thing. But some girls don't write anything in their profiles, especially on Tinder. You can't. There's there's no way for them to to write anything about themselves on Tinder. So I guess just how do I craft that first message so I can get the best possible chance of legal responding? I know what the first message should never be. Sup. S U P. Sup. That happens a lot online, particularly in gay dating sites where everyone's acting like a bro, I hear from my young gay friends, who find SUP very annoying. It stands for what is up, what is currently happening, SUP. Uh, I, I can't tell you, though, what to say on Tinder, what to say on OkCupid. Um, Terry and I have been together for 20 years, and so my dating life, my dating history predates Online dating. I've never done online dating. I wouldn't know how to break the ice with an interested female online. So I'm going to throw this to the experts out there. We're going to crowdsource this one. We're going to ask Savage Love lady listeners, girl listeners, what's the first thing that he should say if he's reaching out to you on OkCupid? And is that different than the first thing that he should say to break the ice on Tinder or on FetLife or on anywhere else? What is your advice? The first thing a guy should say to you, the first message you want to see an okay Cupid or Tinder from some dude who's a match. Give us a call, 206-201-2720. Give this guy your best advice. Hi, Dan. I have Peroni's disease, and my penis went from seven and a half inches to five and a half inches with a serious bend. I've become so ashamed about it that I can't make love to my wife anymore. She doesn't seem to mind but it bothers me. I feel like I can't touch the back of her anymore. I'm upset because it's ruined my self-esteem. And um, I would like your advice about this. 
Joining me by phone, Stephen King. He's a board-certified urologist. Uh, so, Stephen, um, the caller is clearly in a lot of emotional distress here. Uh, but before we get to his specific questions, can you, for listeners who aren't familiar with Peyronie's disease, walk them through what it is? Sure. Um, Peyronie's disease, it's a scarring of the penile tissue. I think in order to understand Peyronie's disease, it's also important to understand sort of how normal erections work, what's the normal physiology of an erection. Mm-hmm. And basically, uh, the anatomy is that you have uh, two parallel corporal bodies. They're called corpora cavernosa. Think of them as sort of a long cylindrical balloon. But instead of kind of thin rubber, it's very thick rubber, much like a, a tire of a car. And uh, for erection to work, uh, those corpora have to expand and extend under pretty high pressures. That pressure is provided by blood flow. Mm-hmm. So these corpora cavernosa have sort of two main aspects to them. One is that they can stretch, so they have to have this elastic stretchiness to them, but they also have to become very rigid and firm under high pressure, kind of like a thick uh, car tire, if you will. So uh, a normal, healthy corpora cavernosa extend under good pressure in parallel fashion, forming a straight erection. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you have... Um, abnormal tissue in one of these cavernosa that no longer stretches, it doesn't have the elastic fiber. If you have a scar that forms in one area, the rest of the penis will stretch, but that one area will not stretch and causing a curvature or bending towards an area of scar. How do people develop this? People with otherwise healthy functioning penises have developed mm-hmm. uh, Peyronie's disease later in life. What was what, the cause well, you know, that's a, it's actually still a great mystery. I mean, there's a lot of uh, theories out there, and probably the ones that make most sense have to do with sort of micro-trauma to the tissue. Because we all know that if you have trauma to tissue, the body's reaction is to scar. Mm-hmm. Sort of these uh, fibroblasts move in, and they, de- they deposit this abnormal uh, collagen, which is uh, sort of the structural tissue of our body. But uh, when collagen is laid down in a normal fashion, it can expand and contract, but in an abnormal arrangement, as happens with scar, that tissue just isn't as stretchy. Probably uh, for Peyronie's disease uh, uh, patients, um, there's some, something happens along the way, perhaps you know, repeated use, uh, certain angles of penetration that might be causing some microscopic trauma, causing little you know, microscopic bleeds, if you will. Mm-hmm. But this, you know, it doesn't obviously happen in, in all males as we age. Um, there's certainly some likely pr- uh, genetic predisposition to this. We certainly see this in certain patients with certain genotypes. Um, we see patients have an association with something called a, a Duputrin's contracture. It's actually a striking uh, correlation. This contracture is actually a scarring of the tendons most typically in the, in the hands, on the palms of the hands. So you see some patients, if, very often if you ask a patient who has Peyronie's disease, you say, look, let me look at your palms, and they have a scar, a thick scar on their hand. That tends to happen probably 10 to 20% of the time there's this association. The point is, is that there's probably some overall predisposition that these patients may have. And then you throw on a little trauma, and then the scar forms. 
Okay, just quickly digressing on the trauma issue. You know, there there are books out there about cock and ball torture. There's BDSM communities that have formed basically around getting hit in the junk. Um, Guys don't walk around with their cocks in little metal cases to protect them like dick in a box from incidental trauma. If if just some like moment of stray trauma could induce Peyronie's disease, how are all these people in the BDSM community who are literally getting kicked in the dick not mm-hmm. developing en masse Peyronie's <laughs> disease? How come we're not hearing about that on FetLife.com and other like kink sites? Like, whoa, everybody's got Peyronie's disease. Stop it with the CBT. You know, like I said, I think if you know any male who's used his penis throughout his lifetime is going to have some degree of trauma. Now, these other cases you're talking about, these these things are more extreme versions of it. But once again, if a patient doesn't have this predisposition towards these hard scars, whereas, you know, most probably most healthy men don't have that excessive ability to scar. So there's some genetic component here. It's not just take healthy yeah. dick, smack it, you've got Peyronie's yeah. disease. Sure. But also you realize in many cases, we may not know of a of a genetic component, and there may be some trauma. And we know that, you know, men who suffer a penile fracture, for instance, which is, you know, when an erect penis is uh, misfires, if you will, and causes an acute bend during intercourse, which will rupture those cavernosa. So you can imagine a tear in that car tire, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, blood will extravasate, and people will form a scar. And yes, so you can have a Peyronie-type situation occur with known acute trauma to the penis because the risk of them developing a plaque like this is very high. This brings us to treatment, and I understand that there's not a lot of good treatment options when someone has Peyronie's disease. Well, you know, Peyronie's disease is interesting in that you're right. (laughs) There may not be a lot of great treatment options, but there are plentiful treatment options. There's a there's many, many different options out there that range from uh, simply, you know, penile stretching exercises to many, many different pills that people can take. Um, there's also numerous injectional therapies, so you can actually inject drugs directly into that scar or that plaque. Mm-hmm. Um, people have tried radiation. Okay, but what works? In your, in your experience, what's, a, what's the most effective treatment for Peyronie's disease? First of all, it depends on the degree of the curvature and the severity of the disease. And it's very important when counseling a patient, you know, how much does this bother you? How much does the angulation bother you? How much does the pain or discomfort? Are you able to have intercourse successfully and, and satisfy your partner to what you would like? For many men with Peyronie's disease, they're actually not bothered by it at all. It's just something they may have mentioned to their doctors um, and they noticed it on their penis, but it doesn't bother them. So in that case, probably no intervention is really necessary. But for men who have really clinically significant disease that's very bothersome, first of all, we have to figure out how long it's been there. But there is some degree of spontaneous remission. In other words, in some men, the scar will soften up over time. And in perhaps uh, 10 to 15% of cases, get back to a normal functional uh, penis that, that didn't require any treatment. So uh, the time course is important. It's, if this happens acutely in men in, in the first couple of weeks or months, sometimes counseling that, you know, hey, we need to watch this through. It might take a year or two, but in some cases, 
it can get better. Okay, well, let's talk, let's talk specifically about the caller mm-hmm. and his issue. He doesn't mention mm-hmm. any pain. And I understand from talk, my, my conversations, things I've written about parent disease in the past, that in many people it is very painful. An erection becomes very painful. Intercourse right. is almost impossible. And with this caller, and he doesn't mention pain, and he mentions that he's capable of intercourse, but he, he's sort of dispirited that the 1.5 inches of length that he seems to have lost to the curvature – uh, and I would encourage him to measure his penis along the arc because it's probably still seven inches long um, just with the bend. Uh, that That's sort of a psychological thing for him, that he's, he can't, feels like he can't get as far into his wife as he used to. And he equates that with not being able to pleasure her the way he used to, which is not true. Like uh, women, it's not, you know, it's not how far up her vaginal canal you get your dick that provides her with pleasure. It's how you stimulate the, the clitoral tissues and the exposed part of the glands, which you don't need a seven-inch dick to do. You don't need a dick to do that at all. So, so you know, what would our advice for this guy be? He, he, th- there's no pain. He can have intercourse, but there's like an emotion. You know, he's attached to his penis the way it used to be. As I am attached to, I would be, I would miss my penis if it suddenly changed dramatically. Sure. So, what, what's the best course of treatment, or what are his options, or what would your advice for him be if he were your patient? I, mean, I, think, I think, first of all, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. There's a lot of self-importance that people attach to their, their erection that is maybe not incongruous with the actual functional erection that they have. Uh, this caller certainly has the ability to have a functional erection as far as counseling among what can be done about it. You know, at the early phase, I certainly would recommend all these men go on some basic pills. I mean, vitamin E is a very easy thing for to have people take. The clinical data behind it is not all that great. But then again, the harm of taking vitamin E is not all that much as well. Why did you recommend vitamin E? Vitamin E has some, it has some antioxidant properties that is thought to help heal some of this scar tissue or perhaps reduce it. But once again, the data overall is, is not very good and there hasn't been good studies with placebo arms and the whole rigorous medical literature on this is not very impressive, but it's one of those things where there's not a lot of harm, so we recommend it. There are other pills that can be taken if people want to take pills that might have some slightly better clinical data behind it, but they require taking pills for long periods of time that might have side effects, and once again, without clear-cut long-term benefits in good studies. You know, interestingly, we have a brand new therapy that just got FDA approved that I'm actually excited about to use. I have a number of patients I'm going to use it on, but I can't speak clinical experience because it was just FDA approved. Um, There's a new drug that can be injected directly into this plaque, which has been used for many, many years on those men who have those hand plaques. I mentioned the Dupuytren's contractures. So there are treatment options, and if this guy hasn't discussed the problem with his doctor, which he may not have if he's as embarrassed and ashamed of it as he seems to be, he needs to discuss this with his doctor now. Yes. And in fact, in in some cases, the sooner the better, because some of these therapies may actually be more effective earlier on in the disease. In other words, once the disease becomes sort of calcified and, and stable, some of the therapies may be less effective and maybe possibly require surgical interventions, which obviously nobody wants to do unless they have to do. There are surgical treatments to, to fix these scars and, and so forth. And in the most extreme cases, in some cases, we have to put in penile implants. Now, I don't think your caller, is, it doesn't sound like is at that point. Clearly, more information is needed from him 
you know, as far as the, the time course of his curvature and his bending, um, what his expectations are. And I agree, he definitely needs uh, to put this into an overall perspective uh, and understand how his functional erection is different than his expectations. But that's all very important. You know what I think might help him put it into a little bit of perspective? And I'm, and I'm not actually, I'm trying not to be cavalier here at all, mm-hmm. but... Mm-hmm. Get to a sex toy store, go to a Bayland, go to a Good Vibrations, go to a Smitten Kitten, and look at the dildo and sex toy options that have bends in them. If you have a functioning penis with a bend in it that's five and a half inches long, there are women who are lining up at Smitten <laughs> Kitten and Bayland to buy sex toys that are basically five and a half inches long with a bend in them. So sure. you can maybe call her... Like learn to love your new dick the way you loved your old dick for while it's while it's in this condition, you know. And it may, as as uh, Doctor King said, maybe temporary. It could straighten itself out. No pun intended. In the end, yeah. there are treatment options available. But in the meantime, you if you have a functioning penis, if erections aren't painful, mm-hmm. if your wife is getting off, you have a brand new sex mm-hmm. toy in your pants to explore. <laughs> for now, you know we see curvatures of ninety degrees or more where people have actual, can still get an erection. And despite their ability to potentially penetrate, I can see how that would be very distressing to some patients and very uncomfortable. And, 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 Absolutely, and I think I it's, agree. It's, a, it's a very legitimate complaint that he, he has and needs to be treated very seriously, but I think we need more information probably from him. And he needs to seek to his doctor about it and not just yes. uh, our guest expert Absolutely. doctor. But, and pyronic disease does not have to ruin your sex life, your self-esteem, or even no. your dick potentially. Get treatment. Dr. Stephen King, a board-certified urologist in practice here in Seattle. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. All right. Thank you. Hey, Dan. Let's talk boobs. I mean, tits, tatas, fun bags, you know, breasts. They are wonderful. My girlfriend has a pair, and they're fantastic. They are the little tasks, the little triggers that finally set off her powder keg of an orgasm. And um, it, she just loves having them played with and me holding them, and they're just great. They work really well in our sex life. She has small ones, and, you know, they're pretty small. Like, she can look completely flat chested sometimes and she's got about a, you know, an English muffin, um, kind of breast, not too much bigger. Um, still, I feel just like the best thing in the world. Like only a breast can feel in your hand. And, um, and I love playing with them and sucking on them just as much as she enjoys me doing that to her. But she still all the time is like complaining about her not looking like other girls, not drawing my eyes like other girls, because of course, when I see big tits walk by, I go, Ooh. And, um, and you know, she is kind of getting down on implants at the same time. She's talking about implants and I don't know what to say. I really want to know if you can help me out with a way to respond to this dialogue that she's having that, that I feel like is a, is a, a bit of a minefield. Um, kind of like the whole question of, uh, whether the jeans maker looks at, you know, and it feels like either quest, either response could be a bad answer. I mean, I love telling her pretty much what I've said on the call here that her breasts are great and I love what they do and I am totally happy with them the way they are. And of course, I really like augmented breasts too. So if she wanted to do that, then that would be totally fine with me too. But, you know, that's just telling her, yeah, okay, honey, whatever you want to do, it's great. 
I don't know if I'm really helping her at all there or if I'm just like looking like I'm trying to be Switzerland too much. And, uh, you know, I just wonder what uh, your recommendation is in that situation. This is a trick question and it's a trap. You should say nothing except I love your breasts. I love breasts of all sizes, big and small. But I love your breasts as evidenced by the attention that I lavish upon them. But they're your breasts, honey. And if you want to get breast implants because it's what you want, then you should do what you want with your breasts. But I have no horse in this race. I love your breasts exactly the way they are. And I would love them if you got breast implants because I love you and I love your breasts. Do with your breasts what you wish, what you want without any consideration for my feelings. Because again, I love your breasts. And then shut up about it forever. If you tell her that you would really like it if she got breast implants because you love big tits, with the caveat that I also like your tits just fine, like your tits just fine, she will be devastated. She will break up with you and she will get the breast implants and you will never enjoy them. Like I said, it's kind of a trap, kind of a trick question. You have to recuse yourself. You don't want her getting breast implants to please or keep you, particularly if there are side effects. And there are sometimes devastating side effects. Nipple sensitivity can be totally shot when you get breast implants. There are some women who nipple play is really important to their ability to climax and they get breast implants and that can really interfere with their ability to climax. You don't want to be responsible you don't want her to look at you and think, you are the reason I did this to myself, to keep you, to entertain you. So you have to just back the fuck off. You have to recuse yourself, like I said, from this entire decision-making process. Encourage her to talk to other people, talk to her girlfriends. You are fine with her breasts the way they are. And you should be fine with her breasts the way they are. If she wants to change her breasts, that's her decision. That's her call. Hi, Dan. My best friend recently told me that she was pregnant which is great in that she's always wanted a baby and that's been her main focus in life forever. What's not great is that in order to make this happen, she deliberately stopped taking her birth control and didn't tell her boyfriend. The only reason I know about this is because she got incredibly wasted one night and blurted out the whole thing to me. A few more things about my friend. She has PCOS and she's had a miscarriage before, and she may or may not ever be able to have a child again. Her boyfriend is a graduate student here. He has no money. And when they got together, she said, I want to get married and have babies. And he said, I never want that. So basically, she deliberately did the opposite of what he had, you know, they sort of never agreed on it because even though they're both 30, it's the first relationship for both of them. So her telling me that she did this was really surprising because she talks constantly about the time she was raped. And I feel like this is rape, what she's done to him. So this is none of my business, except that she's made it my business. She calls me all the time uh, to talk about how she's so, she doesn't understand why her boyfriend broke up with her and doesn't want to see her anymore. She wants to talk about being pregnant all the time, which is something I have no experience with. So I, I can't do much but be like, oh, my God, sucks that you're throwing up all the time. Hey, what you did was messed up. So she put me in the middle of this, and I can't, I don't feel like I can stop being her friend. If for no other reason than her parents are coming to visit, 
tomorrow and I have to pick them up and show them around town because none of her other friends are available. And basically, I don't know how I feel about this. It's none of my business. Should I feel anything? Why does it bother me what she did so much? And what do I do? Here's why it bothers you what she did, why it bothers you so much and why it should bother you so much. Because someone who would do to a person she claimed to love, a person she claimed to wish to marry, a person she said she wanted to spend her life with, someone who engaged in this level of deceit and betrayal directed at that person, this person she loves, who knows what she's capable of doing to someone who is a friend. She is a terrible, terrible, selfish, deceptive person and she is in your life and you somehow feel beholden to her in ways that I find mystifying. You have to pick up her parents from the airport and show them around because none of her other friends are available? What? On what planet are your friends obligated to show your parents around or pick them up at the airport because you're busy and somehow that responsibility people are in line for, like the, the throne of England, that they're third and fourth in line for the throne of England. You were third or fourth in line for picking up her fucking parents and showing them around town? Bullshit. Tell her to pick up her own fucking parents and if she can't pick up her fucking parents, tell her fucking parents to take a goddamn cab and show themselves around. They're adults. And get her out of the, the fuck out of your life and tell her why. Too many people coast along in life doing terrible, shitty things to other people and getting away with it and not thinking there's anything wrong with what they're doing because they don't pay the kind of cost because they're friends – the, the people around them, their family, don't look to them and say, that was shitty. When somebody betrays a partner in this unforgivable a fashion, it really is important for that person to hear from their community, their friends, their family members, that that kind of behavior is shitty and not okay and not the way you treat someone that you profess to love and fills us with doubt about your affection for us, for me. So get this person the fuck out of your life. And a really effective way to get her the fuck out of your life is to call her ex-boyfriend and tell him what she told you. He deserves to know. And let this be a lesson to all the guys out there. Once that egg is fertilized, you are helpless. If she says she's on hormonal birth control, trust but verify with a goddamn condom. Not verify by going through her drawers and making sure there's birth control pills in them. Verify with a goddamn condom. You guys have complete control over your reproductive capacity until that moment that your semen is in her vaginal canal and then it is all over. So take it home with you. Use a condom. Carry it out. I feel bad for him. You feel shitty that I'm helping your friend with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, I feel bad. I hope she miscarries. hope she miscarries. Shouldn't bring a child into the world this way with a reluctant, drafted, biological father. I wouldn't round it up to rape, but this is a terrible, non-consensual, reproductive thing to do to somebody with devastating lifelong consequences. Maybe it gets close and it is not fair. And I couldn't imagine if I were in your shoes wanting to be this person's friend. I don't have friends who are shits to people. I don't have friends who are shitty to their partners. And neither should you. And of course, at the, we'll throw this in at the very end. She's pregnant and drunk. 
She's pregnant and getting drunk and confessing this all to you. Here's hoping for a miscarriage. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Guys, wear a condom. Wear a condom. It's your cum. Pack it in. Pack it out. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm 16, and I actually have a question about my mother. She grew up in a really Puritan kind of authoritarian home and was also sexually assaulted when she was married to my father. Um, They are now divorced, but both of these situations have led to her having uh, trust issues and and panic and sort of, you know, self-resentment and obviously resentment of both her mother and her um, ex-husband and my dad. We were recently talking about her dating situation, and I was finally able to convince her that, you know, normal, healthy, well-adjusted adults have premarital sex, and this is like a normal thing, and she shouldn't feel, you know, bad about herself for doing this. She recently got into a relationship with a guy who, you know, didn't seem creepy or like a piece of shit douchebag motherfucker, but that was exactly what he ended up being. He apparently lied about swinging uh, and had multiple partners and chose not to disclose. In fact, he explicitly said that he was no longer swinging. And uh, even worse, he lied about having an STD, which my mom may well now have. We are going to the doctors tomorrow and uh, yeah, we'll see if she has an STD. So my question is, uh, I'm just wondering how to get my mom the right emotional support in this kind of situation. Um, Obviously, she feels really taken advantage of and victimized. She does have a therapist because of the divorce, because of uh, the situation in which she grew up. So we're hoping that, you know, she can schedule several appointments and and talk this situation over. And also, I wanted to know how to get her the right medical support. We are going to the doctor tomorrow, but I was just wondering if there are any support groups for uh, people with STDs or people who have been lied to in this way and I sort of consider this bioterrorism, and it's just, like, really terrible. Thanks, Dan. You're worried about your mom, uh, understandably so. But I'm sitting here on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building overlooking beautiful Puget Sound, and I'm worried about you. You seem like the adult in this relationship with your mother. You seem like the parent, the caregiver, the caretaker. You are asking me, you know, what can be done or what more can be done. She has a therapist. You're taking her to the doctor. You're wondering about support groups. It sounds like you're doing everything you could possibly do. It sounds like to me like you're doing nothing that should be expected of you as a teenage child. My parents got divorced when I was about your age. And you know what we did? We weren't a burden while our parents were going through a very ugly time in their lives. That was what we could do for them. We went to school and we didn't cause needless drama or extra trouble for our already troubled parents. We didn't burden them any further. We took care of ourselves. Your job is to take care of yourself. You're 16 years old. In a couple of years, you're going to be an adult and you're going to be moving out or going to college or on your own. Your mother can't be this dependent on you. The best help you could give your mother right now is transitioning her out of this unhealthy, burdensome dependence on you. You should talk to her therapist about the role you've been playing in her life. It's too much. It's too crushing. You sound so mature. I bet this has been going on for a long time where you have been your mother's confidant, support system. She's been a wreck and a mess. You were there to pick up the pieces. You can't raise her forever. You can't be there at her side forever. You can't be her first line of defense. You cannot be her support system. So perhaps as one last 
support system act, you can help your mother construct the support system that she should be constructing for herself, which is comprised of adults, peers, professionals, in addition to her therapist. If your mother wants to join a support group for people who've been in infected with STIs by lying swingers, that's a Google search away. She can find that for herself. If she's incapable of Googling, you can spend 10 minutes Googling it for her and then give her the number and then back off and go live your life. Get out there. Help your mother reach out maybe to some adults in her life. Find, identify some people with her that she can lean on in addition to you and make it clear to her that it's really important that she begin to lean on these other people and be a person that they can lean on in turn because that's what an adult friendship relationship is about because you're not going to be under her roof the rest of your life. She can't depend on you in the way that she has been up until now forever because you're not going to sign up for that, are you? I should hope not. You're going to the doctors. She has a therapist. Support groups are not hard to find. People get lied to. People get hurt. I'm not underplaying the, the, the shitty things your mother's mother did to your mother, the terrible thing your mother's father did. But people out there in the dating, in the dating world, people lie. People are shits. People get their hearts broken. People, people are deceived. Sometimes sexually transmitted infections are passed along. That just is sadly – a part of the mating and dating world. If your mother can't handle that without going to pieces to such an extent that her 16-year-old daughter has to rush in to rebuild her, then she shouldn't date. Then she should be celibate and single. Get some cats and make some friends. But she can't lean on you like this for the rest of your life. You can't let her lean on you like this for the rest of your life. You can't let her lean on you to the extent that she's leaning on you now unless you – are cool with her being this dependent on you always. Love your mother, care for your mother, help her out when you can, but you need to create a healthy distance from her and you need to lay down some boundaries because it doesn't sound like your mother is capable of creating healthy boundaries all by herself. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old straight female living on the East Coast. I have a question for you. I just started listening to your podcast and I love it. So thank you so much for posting on a regular basis. I have recently been wondering about the question of how should I refer to my relationship? I want to use a term that doesn't assume anything about gender or about who my partner is or my boyfriend, as, it, as the case may be, as he's a boy. But at the same time, my friend rightly raised the issue of this is probably a term that has some assumptions that probably does imply that I am dating a woman because it is a term that when gay marriage was not as common, although it is not fully common, but when it was less common than it is now, meant that you had to use the term um, partner rather than husband and wife because your marriage wasn't state-sanctioned. I think there are other issues here as well. I think you do have to answer the question around, you know, what are you trying to imply about your beliefs? Um, so I guess I'm just trying to get your thoughts on how I should refer to my significant other, my boyfriend, my partner, in a way that doesn't assume anything, but is also not trying to reappropriate a term that perhaps doesn't belong to me. Thanks, Dan. Honestly, I don't give a shit what you call your boyfriend. This is clearly the result of all this Tumblr monstering of people. Oh, you're nervous about reappropriating the term partner and whether that's allowed to you as a straight woman with your 
precious straight privilege and how dare you. Look, partner, we're done with it. You can fucking have it. We always hated it. I hated partner because it, what partner was was this word that gay people used to placate nervous straight people who didn't want to think about us fucking. So we said partner like cowboys or lawyers who don't necessarily fuck and then you know they make Brokeback Mountain and blow that all to hell. You can call them your partner. If you're nervous about gender identifying language, yaga yaga yaga, there are much more important things to worry about, I think, than whether you calling your partner boyfriend somehow privileges or deprivileges or double reverse backflip into the splits with a dismount and a 10 point over in the East German privileges. Nobody gives a fuck. He's your boyfriend. Call him your boyfriend. And anybody has a problem with that, don't be that person's friend. And think about other things. Think about more important things. Think about the midterm elections. Think about the efforts to strip poor people and African-Americans and young people of the right to vote in dozens of states. Think about climate change. There are so many more important things to think about than whether the term you're using to describe your significant other is gendered in a way that might make other people uncomfortable. There's so much else that we should be discomforted by that's going on in the world right now. This isn't on that list at all. But, you know, so even other, that works. People use that. People use that a lot. Call him your partner. Call him your boyfriend. Call him the guy who sticks his dick in you. Nobody cares. Hi. So my question is this. Um, I'm a recently out gay man. been with a, a boyfriend for about two years now. I just met him right after I came out. Been together, living together. We have been at libidos. Um, his is higher than mine. I'm in my late 30s. Um, I actually had my testosterone checked. Um, and it was low, so I'm on P. So I'm doing these things to try to get my libido up to match his. We're very, very busy people, but uh, he's kind of taken on this new habit of uh, initiating sex with me like really early in the morning, like 4.30 a.m. And uh, it really makes me angry <laughs> because I really like my sleep. I don't get a lot of it. And he feels that since his libido is higher, that I should you know do what I can to help satisfy him for the good of a relationship. We've talked about it, you know, and but it's still kind of an issue. It happened this morning and made me really angry because I got four hours of sleep. So wanted your advice on the whole question of whether, you know, you should typically put out in order to satisfy a, a partner with a higher libido and where does that stop and where they should have respect for when you do or do not want to have sex. The mismatched libido question is perhaps one of the most vexing questions because there is no solution that's going to make either really or both parties happy. He needs to have less or you need to have more. It's no fun having sex with somebody who's not into it. It's just going through the motions to please you. But the higher libido partner is going to be unsatisfied and feel resentful and neglected if they're not having somewhere close to the amount of sex they want to have. Ugh, it is – a nightmare. That's why I'm constantly now just saying to people, this is an unsolvable problem. You need to take sexual compatibility more seriously at the outset of a relationship and not regard mixed match libidos as something that's going to get better over time or something that can be solved because it really can't unless the higher libido partner is content with assisted masturbation at times, which is I'm not feeling it. I'm not horny, but I will hold you. I will talk dirty to you. I will sit on your face and you can jack off, Right. If that doesn't work for him, if he requires your full and enthusiastic participation, this in the long term is the kind of smallish problem. It's always a small problem when it 
it's a sex problem. People always want to view a sex problem as a small problem because you know emotional compatibility is so much more important. Life goals so much more important. Yeah, but the small sex problem has a way of becoming a crack that becomes a chasm that ends up destroying the relationship over time. So either you get out of this relationship or you stand up for yourself and say, I'm taking tea. I, this is my libido. This is where it's at. I can accommodate you this often, this much. This is the sex I enjoy. I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to go that extra mile and assist you in masturbation. But stop waking me the fuck up at 4.30 in the morning. Anybody, even if you had matching libidos, that's not something you would put up with. That's just some rude-ass selfish bullshit. I'm horny, so I'm going to destroy your sleep. I'm horny, so you have to get up. You need to tell him that that ain't going to fly. Encourage him to go masturbate. You don't mention how you feel about masturbation. Sometimes the high libido partner is perfectly content to go jacket. But the low libido partner resents the masturbation, resents porn, doesn't want their partner being intimate even with his own hand or her own hand or her own vibrator in place of the sex that they could share together. You can't be the low libido partner and say to the high libido partner, this outlet that takes me out of it is forbidden you. So if you haven't given him the okay at 4.30 in the morning when he's horny to slip out of bed, grab the laptop and go sit on the couch and crank one out, you should. And if he keeps doing it to you, keeps waking you up for sex at 4.30 in the morning, let him know that that's a relationship extinction level violation should it continue because you're not going to put up with that for much longer. And we're going to leave it there. Uh, but quickly before we go, we have a sort of a selection bias problem on a show like this. People call because they're unhappy. They call because they're breaking up. They call because they have problems with their relationships or their sex lives with their partners. So we hear a lot from people who are unhappy and that can give people a warped sort of perspective or view of relationships. So they're just these misery engines that make everybody feel terrible all the time. So just for balance and just this once, we're having someone on the show who is completely happy and completely contented with his romantic partner. Joining me quickly before we end the show, Jordan. Hey there, Jordan. Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. So you like your girlfriend? Yeah, I would say I love her even. And, and, and you're completely happy. Everything works. Absolutely. Everything is working. We're actually moving in together and moving to Denver, Colorado this summer. And that's never gone wrong for anyone. No one who's ever moved in together ultimately in the end was unhappy. So that's a really good sign right. that your happiness will be eternal. Absolutely. Uh, and how did you kids meet? So when I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, I had no one. I was just moving here on a whim for a job. So I did what every young professional does when they join OkCupid. Mm-hmm. And I was on OkCupid, but I was only looking for friends because at that time I had actually had another girlfriend in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I was coming from. So I was looking for friends, and I messaged Sharon, and she said, yeah, let's meet up. I have some other friends who work at the college there. You know, we'll all meet. Mm -hmm. And we met for the first time on July 5th. And then her and I started hanging out more one-on-one. Then I finally got up the courage a couple months later to ask her out. And wait, wait, the rest wait, wait. Is history. Okay, wait. The rest is history, including your ex-girlfriend with whom you were still involved when you met Sharon. Correct. So this engine of happiness that is your relationship now was an engine of misery for your ex. Um, I've never heard it be of misery. That would be uh, a story I haven't heard from her yet, but yes. Somebody along the lines, I'm sure, has gotten hurt. Yeah, she could have called the show. Your ex-girlfriend could have called the show with this tale of woe about being dumped in favor of this new girl, right? 
And then here I am a couple months later talking about the other side of that story. That's there's right. always two sides of every story. There are. There's no, there's no gain without some pain. So quickly, before we let you go, you're happy with Sharon. Everything's great. Sharon isn't on OkCupid talking to other guys right now. Like you were on OkCupid talking to other girls once upon a time? The only thing she would be doing on OkCupid is getting some of those. So she writes a blog. And on her blog, she likes to talk about um, some of her first messages from prospective men. So maybe for more uh, information for that blog, she would be on there. But I haven't known her to be on there since we've been together. You're a very trusting individual. And I, <laughs> wish, and I wish you well. And you want to wish Sharon something, so go ahead. Yeah, uh, Sharon, by the time this airs, it would have been your birthday a few days ago. So happy birthday. I love you. I hope your jaw hitting the floor right now as I'm probably looking at you is well worth every time. And while, her, and while her mouth is gaping open, I think uh, somebody deserves a thank you blowjob. I think somebody deserves many thank you something. So, <laughs> Good luck to Jordan and Sharon on your new lives in uh, the beautiful city of Denver where pot is legal and Sharon's jaw is on the floor. Thanks for uh, giving us a call, Absolutely. Jordan. Hey, thanks so much, Dan. Bye. Hey, Dan. I am just calling about episode 391, the woman who was concerned about the wonderful man who didn't have the same libido level she had. She kept dropping all these clues about him collapsing over her and use your upper body strength. And he's always too tired. And I wonder if his problem is just he needs to get to the gym. She might literally be exhausting him. Yeah. Hey, Dan, everybody at the Savage Lovecast. I just listened to the caller on uh, episode 391, you know, woman whose boyfriend was going off for an adventure overseas. Just wanted to let her know that, uh, it, at least for myself and my wife, uh, we did have a, a sort of similar period of separation before I went off to China for a few months. Had a bit of an adventure over there myself, and we did our own thing during that time. And um, now uh, happily married for 28 years and going strong. So there's always hope and uh, hope everything works out well for you guys. Hi, Dan. This is in response to episode 390. This is for the parent of the teenage lesbian from all of the adult children of parents who weren't able to accept or love their kids as they were when they were a teenager Thank you. Every time I hear a story about this, it makes me a little bit jealous, but makes me have a lot of hope. So I just want that mother to know that there is so much love going out to her from so many people out there who weren't able to get it when they needed it. And we're really going to leave it there. Before we go, though, one last thing. A big thank you to all the Magnum subscribers out there. We hope you're digging the new all-access model of subscriptions here to the Savage Lovecast. We really appreciate your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk You and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.